Andy Langdon episode. Um, but first things first, because someone was really nice to us and I want to be nice back. Um, a fellow named Sam, uh, who works at a place called Lakeda Brewery in the north of um, Northern Ireland. So like the north coast of Northern Ireland. Gate uh, just out of the blue, like no solicitation on my part, um, just emailed and said, hey, I, I like the show. Do you want a, t- uh, a bunch of beers from my brewery? And I was like, yeah. Even though I'm not like a massive beer guy, I'm not really a big drinker at all. But um, so, so they sent me a 12 pack of like craft beer. And folks, it was so good. Like these beers have like changed my perception of what things like IPAs, which I know are like much maligned. They have like amazing IPAs of like refreshing and don't taste like clean and fluid like a lot of IPAs <laughs> do. They also oh, yeah. sent they, they missed an natu- Oh, you go. Oh, sorry, they sent a um a stout that's fourteen uh, percent, which I was like, yeah, that's this a hefty is That's a that's a beer and a half right there. It's well, three beers and a half. There's a, there's a great stout called Dragon's Milk that hits at about 14. And yeah, that, that shit doesn't fuck around. <laughs> it does not. But <laughs> And I, I drank it last night. Um, just that and a couple of the others just to finish off the pack. And this, um, I was very worried about that stout. This, that, that. I, I think like after about 6% uh, beers start getting less nice. And you know what? It, it tasted good. It's kind of chocolatey, kind of like coffee flavor. It, it, yeah, it actually tasted really decent. I could like tell it was this like super beer um, that I felt like pretty much fell asleep in the middle of an episode of Better Call Saul, which yeah, I don't normally fall asleep in the middle of stuff. I don't think I've ever fallen asleep in the middle of anything. Well, I mean, you but, are uh, a father, so falling asleep in the middle of an episode of Better Call Saul after having a bunch of beers is like... Oh yeah, I should also be playing like um, fantasy football if I'm going to have that sort of lifestyle. Have Boston playing very quietly in the background. <laughs> I don't know if the, I don't know. Brilliant. Do British dads love Boston the way that American dads no, American dads they, love Boston? They're like a deep purple, die straights. Um, I'm going off okay. what my dad likes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I that's that's yeah. Those are dad classics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> classics, dad stuff. So, um, yeah, folks at home, they, they didn't ask for like a sponsorship or anything but i'm gonna be mentioning this brewery on a few episodes because just to say thanks we had we Uh, had another guy also named jesse tate i didn't see what distillery he was through but he also emailed completely unrelated to the beer person offer or emailed to offer us like a tasting sampler pack of gins that he is distilled we'd be the most wasted podcast it's so good. Like, I, What's really I, funny is people might think, based on how we speak, that we're typically wasted, but we are we're fucking no. sober Sally teetotaler pieces of shit. <laughs> so making us incredibly intoxicated feels like an exciting new frontier for us to explore. Yeah, what if we're just like very calm and normal? But um, yeah, so folks at home, the Cada Brewery, really delicious beers. Like literally, all of them were good. There was none that were like. This is kind of like the bad one in the batch. They were just all good. I was 12 of them. They mentioned so, that they'd done a uh, an Ursula K. Le Guin-themed um, sampler pack or something around have. the time that she passed, and that, that was an immediate, like, okay, oh, yeah. okay. 
Pay my attention. Oh, and they're also a uh, cooperative. So, you know, there's not some boss getting all the money. They, they share the money um, between themselves, I guess. And um, yeah, just great, great beers. Go, go buy them, please. Um, but to, to, to bring us down, to, to bum us all out, um, we're going to be talking about some, uh, you know, sex crimes today. Yep. Yeah. Uh, um, so obviously trigger ever. warnings. We we don't normally do a lot of trigger warnings because we don't really know what we're going to say. Um, but here we will be talking about some you know pretty grim stuff. Um, but you know it's not all doom and gloom because we're going to be talking about wrestling again. Like we we had a, a kind of semi wrestling episode, and I really wish I could put an electric shock collar on Langdon because he's going to just keep going about wrestling for like 15 minutes at a time well i mean not 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 with this one this one really just makes me feel extremely bad but you know okay okay good okay glad that happened um but to talk about wrestling because the absolutely acknowledged uh most smart person on wrestling at the moment is uh josie reisman uh who has been on the show once before to talk about Philip K. Dick. That was around the time her book Ringmaster, which was a biography of Vince McMahon, who is the at the center of these allegations, which we legally have to call them. They're probably correct. Um, so, yeah, Josie, hello. Welcome to the show. And um, yes. yeah, let's, let's talk about wrestling then. Uh, that's what they pay me to do. So yes, I'm happy to discuss professional wrestling with you. Good. Also, you, 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 you speak so highly of me. I don't think I'm nearly the expert on pro wrestling as a whole that you give me credit for, but I, I certainly am a PhD in Vince McMahonology. Nice. Um, that must've been a really troubling degree to acquire. (laughs) Yeah, well, the graduation <laughs> ceremony was me coming out as trans. I finished the first draft the same week that I decided to live my life as a woman. Um, and those two things are not unrelated. I wrote an essay for Polygon that's going to be in the back of the paperback as an appendix called Wrestling Turned Me Cis, Then It Turned Me Trans, which is about how my teenage wrestling watching was very wrapped up in the performance of trying to be a boy uh, at a time when I was hitting adolescence. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, the experience of watching it as research for this book was very different. I was already out as bisexual, but it really helped me come to a new perspective about myself. So anyway, that's getting way far ahead of things. But that no, that's, that's cool. the kind of stuff that happens when you go for your McMahonology degree. Well, I'm guessing probably not a very common reaction to, to wrestling. Um, well, you'd be surprised, yeah. actually. There's a lot of right now there's a real groundswell of queer and trans wrestling, at least in the United States. I can't really speak beyond that. But in the U.S., among independent wrestling promotions, which are legion, you know, they don't make much money. And the people who are in them are day players, you know, who uh, have other jobs. But when you go around the country and you see all of these little indie wrestling outfits, more and more of them are run by for and with queer people and trans people. You know, we're having a paperback release party, excuse me, sorry, um, 
we're having a paperback release party for Ringmaster in Boston on April 16th. And it's going to be this huge queer trans wrestling extravaganza with, you know, you know, we have a ring. There's going to be all kinds of matches and an author talk and signing. So um, I do think there are a lot of people who are queer who either came to wrestling as a queer thing, whether that's indie or sort of like looking at the big corporate stuff from a campy perspective, or they uh, were cis and their evolving understanding of wrestling influenced their evolving understanding of their own gender. Cool. I mean, we, we, we have in part like the, the shifting appreciation of a figure like Goldust, which was initially sure. sort of birthed to jeer kind of gender queerness, but over the course of decades having become sort of such a foundational thing that it would, you'd be hard pressed to see like Dustin Rhodes and, and like cast aspersions at even the character now. Right. Right. Just seeing this, this large shifting perspective of people grappling with what in retrospect has always been a very deeply latent queerness to the act of wrestling. Oh, absolutely. in the same way that I mean, like, yeah, it's ahead. it's the Judas Priest thing, right? Like you look back right. and you go, oh, that that's that's bondage and leather daddy gear. Like this is right. not really ever hidden the queer component. It's just right. And there's something really beautiful. You know, this was sort of spoiler alert, the conclusion of the essay I was telling you about. But I think the queerest thing about wrestling is the fundamental irreducible element of a wrestling match is having both performers able to show pain to show vulnerability because you don't have to have strength in order to make a wrestling match work you can poke each other with your fingertips and as long as you're each able to express pain and pretend that those finger pokes are incredibly damaging then you got yourself a wrestling match. It's not a very good one, but that's the irreducible element. And that ability to show vulnerability is so subversive to the whole point of what we say wrestling is, you know, which is machismo and toughness. But all of these performers, your toughest WWE champions, they all got there because they were able to look like they're in agony and helpless, you know? Mm. I remember the um, when Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant like had a sure. scripted falling out. It, it's it. I remember uh, seeing it and thinking, you know, it's, it's very feminine what they do. It's kind of like two girlfriends having one hundred percent. You're you're thinking of it in exactly the right way. I mean, I I was watching that storyline in full for the first time as part of this research, and there are so many like weirdly beautiful moments in that buildup in 1987 to WrestleMania three, where like, you know, there's that, the confrontation between Andre and Hogan, where Andre rips Hogan's uh, chain his crucifix off of his chest. And it's unclear from the footage, but either Andre's nails or the crucifix cut open uh Hogan's chest a little bit and he started bleeding. It happens so fast you can't see which one it is, but after the motion of ripping the crucifix off, he's bleeding and Andre stomps off and Roddy Piper of all people ducks down to Hogan, his former rival and he goes, "You're bleeding." And he just touches him on the chest and then it fades out to commercial. 
it's a very tender, weird moment, but that's the kind of stuff that makes good pro wrestling work is these powerful, very often because of the way wrestling has been misogynist in the past, powerful male relationships that involve, like you say, the Judas Priest comparison, these incredibly sexual and gay terms where you're like, you know, men yelling at each other, I want your ass, you know, <laughs> like we just take it for granted. But that was like the whole attitude era was them saying that to each other over and over again while also saying no homo and gay bashing. It's a very confusing <laughs> art form, but there's a lot of majesty in it when it's done well. Um, so I'll admit I haven't actually read Ringmaster. <laughs> We've kind of How dare well. you? Well, at least you're open like enough that. to admit it. Most of the time I get it on these places and people like say they've read it and then sound completely shocked when I tell them any information from the book. So I'm, I'm totally <laughs> fine with you being open about that. Good. Yeah, I think this may be my first interview with an author where I actually haven't read the, read the book first. But um, well, that I'm I, less honored by. But you know, no big deal. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the first, very first interview that I'm unprepared for, and I wanted I like, you to know I chose you for that. <laughs> I was like, it's only wrestling. How smart can you be? I don't need to own up on this. There's some dudes in trunks hitting each other and be gay about it. It's not. Like, but, um, Okay, anyway, Bruno Smarties figure. What I was gonna say <laughs> is I have listened to a bunch of podcasts you've been on and read a few interviews and stuff like that. And right. I know from that, uh however brief that research was, that the concept of kayfabe is yes. a huge thing in your in your book. Yes, it is. As it should be in many other books. I think it's a very important topic that goes under-researched because it comes from this bastard art form. I, 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 so, I've long held that, like, learning about kayfabe and sort of the face-heel dynamic as emergent from that has made me a substantially better literary critic. And oh, even, 100%. like, social critic. Because, like, all oh, of a sudden... Oh, for me, it's social critic, yeah. Because, like, I once you understand kayfabe... And especially the mutated version of kayfabe we have now, which I dubbed neo-kayfabe, a lot of contemporary politics and culture yeah. messaging, you know, in business and the arts, it all starts to make a lot more sense when you realize that there is no real clear distinction in life, you know, a real firm boundary between fact and fiction. You can you can coexist with both fact and fiction on a single topic, on your entire worldview whatever and we just kayfabe is all about that it's about the true suspension of disbelief where you are suspending yourself between those two poles of truth and uh falsity you know and if you want i can sort of give you my little rough history of kayfabe but i don't know if yeah, that's what you're asking it, go ahead it, okay it great so um terrific so kayfabe is this possibly pig Latin term. No one really knows the linguistic origins of it. It may have been pig Latin for be fake, you know, um, but whatever the exact origins are, it emerged from the carnivals of the late 19th century. It was a carny talk term and wrestling also largely emerged from those, those wells. You had, these traveling athletic troops at a time post-Civil War when there was rising interest in uh, organized sports and wrestling because a lot of Irish Americans who had learned wrestling in the old country 
went around and taught it to people and did it during the Civil War. And because you had conscription, you had lots of people being exposed to it. You know, you have lots of people getting into wrestling. And because of the nature of carnivals and traveling circuses, that sort of thing, you never want to have too much left to chance. So a lot of these traveling athletic troops, and this was true across the board with all sports, a lot of these would do what was called hippodroming. They would just completely fix whatever sport they were doing. It would just be, let's give them a good show and we'll tell them it was, it wasn't fixed. Um, and eventually that gets rooted out of most sports, but for reasons that no one can totally put their finger on wrestling manages to exist in this bifurcated existence where uh, on the one hand you get legitimate wrestling that comes out of the wrestling stream and that is the kind of wrestling you'd see at the Olympics or at a high school, that sort of thing. And then you also have something called wrestling, which is not a legitimate sport. And its dogma, this thing that is eventually called professional wrestling, its dogma is kayfabe. It retains from the late 19th century carnivals something that everybody else at least ostensibly discarded. And what kayfabe is, is... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always on the hunt for like the best elevator pitch for what kayfabe is. But I would say in the old days, it was largely just a term describing or describing things around the general fiction of professional wrestling, which was the promoters and the wrestlers and everybody else involved telling you, the audience at the show, everything you're about to see here tonight is real. And the reality extended from. Uh, the legitimacy of the wrestling matches that they were real sporting competitions all the way to these are these real characters. These were not, or rather these are real people, not characters that the people you were seeing tonight really are that way outside of the ring. So it went farther than, you know, movie stars or uh, TV actors ever had to do because you had to really commit to your character inside the ring and out and never let yourself be caught being different. And so that was where the term started to really get used internally outside of the wrestling industry. People didn't know about it. Uh, even fans didn't know about it, but it would be like, Hey, 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 an outsider's about to walk by kayfabe kayfabe. And it would mean like, get back into character. You know, if you had guys who were supposed to be good guys hanging out with the bad guys, they would have to split up because like you'd have to say like, oh, you know, we got to we got to go to go into kayfabe like, you know, don't break kayfabe. And what's interesting about kayfabe is it's so much more extensive than just playing a role in a play or a movie or whatever. You really have to, to a certain extent, let it bleed into your real life. You can't get caught at a bar and be seen to be a charming, nice dude if in the ring you're supposed to be a disgusting, horrible, bad guy. So already there was this element of real life and fiction bleeding together. But what happens in 1989 is after about a century of professional wrestling being uh, a thing, excuse me, um, you end up with the death of kayfabe. Because Vince McMahon and his wife, Linda McMahon, who were running the World Wrestling Federation at the time, they wanted to get deregulated. And they also wanted to beat some lawsuits. So in official testimony that they didn't widely publicize but was on the record, they said that their product was as real as the Harlem Globetrotters or the circus, which was a very 
roundabout way of saying, look, we're doing a fake thing here. You know, they would say like, we're doing entertainment. These are exhibitions. You know, they would sort of dance around it, but basically they admitted that this was all fake. And in 1989, after a few years of this deregulation and lawsuit campaigning, they end up getting caught in the act of deregulation by the New York Times, the failing New York Times. The New York Times ends up reporting on the deregulation effort in New Jersey. And side note, fascinatingly, they like totally dropped the ball about what the real story was, because really the real story was them kind of trying to do deregulation and get rid of worker protections and pay less taxes, all that. But the New York Times runs the headline and it ends up being kind of epical. They go, uh, the headline, if I recall correctly, was now it can be told these wrestlers are just having fun. And <laughs> I know I'm not making that up. It was just the whole thing was an expose that ta-da, wrestling is fake. Something that had been revealed in countless reports before. Um, I like I like the idea of it being an expose that wrestling is fun. <laughs> well, that's sort of what it sounds Everyone like. Is having a good time. Well, oh and it's like a terrible God. thing to say because like the the whole industry was going to hell when it came to worker protections. Yeah. Not that there had ever been many, but because of the successful deregulation, there were fewer health and safety inspectors there. And these guys were all getting pumped up on the juice all the time. They were doing so many steroids and other miscellaneous controlled substances. So what ends up happening is kayfabe dies after the New York Times report and a a subsequent later, I believe later even that day report in the New York Post that was just as explosive. Kayfabe is effectively dead. You can't you can no longer credibly say uh, wrestling is a real sport. And for a few years, wrestling really suffers. And I think the key reason is because kayfabe had been killed. And you end up with these matches and these gimmicks and arcs, especially in the World Wrestling Federation, but also in WCW in the early 90s that are so fanciful and silly and have no rooting to them. Well, you, and, don't, you don't like Kane as a big evil Christmas tree? Oh, God, no, <laughs> not my thing. But I actually do kind of like it in its in its way. But it was not it was not getting people yeah. juiced up because there was no element of reality anymore. It had flown off into the far reaches of fancy and and fiction. So what ends up evolving first in Japan and then at WCW and ECW and then finally it gets it explodes at WWF is this new approach to kayfabe that I call Neo Kayfabe, where in a nutshell, you're telling the audience not what you're about to see here tonight is real. If anything, you are, maybe not explicitly, but the the viewer is, very, is if they have any intelligence at all or any context at all, they know that what you are saying to them is, hey, everything you're about to see here tonight is fake. So don't worry about it. You don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to be worried for the safety of the performers. It's all fake and that's fine. But wouldn't it be interesting if you saw something real here? Or wouldn't it be interesting if you saw something real beneath the surface starting to poke its head out? Wouldn't it be interesting if you had your theories about what's really going on behind the scenes? And that's where the magic starts now is this choose your own reality where you're not saying, I believe that everything that I see tonight is real. You're saying, I believe it's all fake except the parts that I think are real. 
And that's the essence of Trumpism, baby. And that's no coincidence because Trump has been watching McMahon family wrestling since the 1950s when he was a child. And you talk to anybody who knows Trump and they will tell you he he loves wrestling and he has participated in WrestleManias in the past. He has attended He's in the Hall of Fame. He's in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely. I keep forgetting to mention that part when people are asking about the Trump connection. But yeah, he's a Hall of Famer for Christ's sakes. He, Trump he, and, the and Vince are very close Linda, friends. He the fact that he brought Linda in as of all things, uh, the Minister of Small Businesses, the Director of Small right. Business Administration. Yes, the That's Director it. of Small Business Administration. And you're like, okay, yeah, sure, the WWE, the um, like noted small business, <laughs> a, a, a company that is a mere uh, at least factor of ten larger than the next largest wrestling promotion in all of history. Like not just I know, now, but that's, like ever. No, ever. <laughs> that's the thing. Vince really did take that that market and remake it in his image for about forty years. I mean, to catch your listeners up. This story has recently, if not come to an end, at least come to a big change of chapter because a few weeks ago, uh, Vince resigned and we'll get into the reasons behind that. But that's an epical moment for pro wrestling because we have not known a world where wrestling is not done either by in imitation of or in direct defiance of Vince McMahon since like 1984, 85. Yeah, and Vince McMahon wasn't just like the owner; he was a character. He was Mr. McMahon. Yes. Well, story. first he was an announcer. He was an announcer yep. for many years, which was very interesting and uh, a curious choice. But then, yes, in 1997 and 1998, he enters the storyline as his character, Mr. McMahon, and that was fateful as well. There's a lot of classic um, scuttlebutt about his um, the almost like psychosexual component of his father who was the owner of the wwwf which was what eventually became the wwe specifically forbidding vince from hanging out with wrestlers or becoming a wrestler himself and slotting him yep. forcefully into the commentator role that then leads to the whole era of him becoming a wrestler um also for our listeners who may be putting something together based on some stuff josie said the connection between kayfabe and the world of the occult is also not incidental. These no, it's not. These overlapping worlds of the uh, articles of faith versus articles of reality in the late 1800s coming through wrestling was the exact same stuff coming up through, say, like the reemergence of lodge culture with like the Theosophical Society and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and all these groups that claimed to be thousands of years old like the rosicrucians did something similar um the masonic lodge basically got reinvented in i think the 1600s but claimed heritage going significantly further back than it actually had um the entire career of alistair crowley is more or less one of kayfabe where like biographers digging into his life can find barely any fucking evidence of the absolutely batshit stuff that he told everyone that he did and that for the longest time in popular culture and even like some academic space people just believed that he did like oh yeah no he he fucked a goat yeah absolutely and he right he drank right, like right. kids and it's like no he like you promote an image of the character and you sell correct and it's like the, people don't, there's a brain hack that people can't get around 
where if you create a character with your name and do obscene things under the name of that character, or at least attribute obscene things to that character, then people have a lot of, but, but, but you make it clear that it is a character. It kind of messes with people to an extent that they can't sort fact and fiction and they don't really try. They just sort of go with whatever sounds the most interesting to them. Do you know who's, who I think is doing kayfabe right now is Dakota Johnson. Ah, oh, yes. with Madam Web. Yeah. My, I yeah. have no idea. I mean, those are really exhausting press tours, but I would not be surprised if her like, oh, this movie is so bad was like their last ditch attempt to get people to watch this bad movie by making it seem excitingly bad, which mm. it seems like they've succeeded in. So if that mm. was kayfabe, we doff our cap to you, Madam Web. Yeah, she's kind of, and there's been like stories about her being like kind of crazy off uh, off screen. Like um, she apparently, and this may or may not have happened, like went into a blue bottle coffee and demanded that she make the coffee. And when they told her no, she kicked everyone out of the store and tied the doors closed with a rope. Oh, that, right. I heard about, wasn't that supposed to be like an ad for something? I see, this is the trouble. It's total kayfabe. It's just this neo-kayfabe melange, miasma, whatever word you want to use of just like, is that real? Well, maybe that part of it was real, but that other part of it doesn't seem like, and all of a sudden you're, you're lost. She's like, not a particularly a... exciting actress. She's not in many good films. But you can't think we... of that many. No, yeah. no. But if we if we get all the the gays to call her mother enough, then um, right, she then maybe excited. Right, we also have this. We also have this this generational version of kayfabe that emerges through. Like learning about this specifically makes the movement and motivation of social media and the kind of conglomeration of grifters and social scolds that like co-op the language of justice <laughs> that whole web like we don't even have to get fully into it but that whole web suddenly becomes so much more um transparent in a certain sense like we they're speaking i, I imagine everyone speaking here is i don't know your age josie but me and gareth are in our uh mid-30s i imagine yeah i'm probably. 38 so yeah around so, yeah. that so that window where everyone was like they're reading am i the asshole or r slash relationships and then going on social media and demanding strangers have an opinion about this and if you pick the wrong one you get yelled at all day and at a certain point it clicking in everyone's head none of this is real like this is well the scary part is some of it probably is real it's not that it's not Right. And that's what kills people. That's what destroys the brain. If it was seen that and proven that am I the asshole was the product of like one person who confess or a little collective who confessed to writing all the posts, that would be one thing. Then everyone could just write it off. Then it would be like horse eBooks, you know? Yeah. But this is, this is, this is something different where it's due to the weird nature of Reddit and, you know, the masks we all get to wear when we anonymously post on the internet you end up with this really muddied water where you're like, I'm sure a lot of people are writing in genuine posts, but I'm sure a lot of people aren't. So where does that leave us? You know, what am I supposed to make of this document? There's this guy who is massively famous in UK TikTok. He's probably, <laughs> Amer- Americans have probably never heard of him. The rest of the world. Okay. Do tell. He, he's like a, just a regular working class dude. He's kind of maybe in his forties or something. And he records these videos which he always captions raise an awareness where he will um, 
like reenact some like insanely melodramatic scene. Uh, say he'll like his son will have drowned in the in the pool in his butt in his back garden, and he'll be holding his lifeless corpse of his son, screaming no, just like you know, like screaming no into the sky, that kind of thing. And he recently collaborated with another influencer, doing these like parodies of his raisin awareness videos, but with her. Wait, why is what does the raisin have to do with it? Raisin, like he's raising raisin. awareness. Oh, of, like, oh, I this. thought yeah. it was like not a pun. Raisin. No, no, it's not. No, no Gareth, it's like, I thought it was British. like a pun on that, that it was going to be yeah. like the sun choked on a raisin or something, but no. No, it's like raising awareness of don't let your kids outside by themselves around water and stuff. It, it, Is it supposed to be funny? N- n- that's the thing. No one really knew. Insanely funny. Like, look, look this guy up. I don't know his, his name. He is. Oh, no. These videos are just so funny. But that's how they get you. They're so I know. camp and so melodramatic. This guy it doesn't so matter whether it's much. legit or not. Can I yeah. take you back in time? The, the beginning of this strand of my career was in 2012 when I, on, on my own and then with a little uh, help from a video editor, made a documentary for Vice called The Finer Points of David Rees. And it was about the writer, comedian, man about town, David Rees, during the period back then when he was working as an artisanal f- pencil sharpener. He was with handheld tools, like, you know, a knife. He would just sort of shave off people's pencils in these like particular styles that he would come up with. And I found this fascinating. And I made this 12 minute documentary back when you could do that sort of thing for Vice. Um, I made this 12 minute documentary about David Reese. And the day it was about to go up, I had this panic attack where I was like, people are going to be wondering whether he's doing it for real or not. And I didn't clarify that. And then I realized, I don't know. That's why I didn't clarify it. And I realized that that was the wrong question. Because here's the thing. If you build a giant ship as a joke, but it's seaworthy and you sail across an ocean in it, does it matter that you built it as a gag? It works, right? That's the that's the weird thing that we don't reckon with is that very often things start as jokes and become much more than that, or they start as something serious and become jokes. And that transition is not a hard light switch. It's a gradual shading. And sometimes you get lost in the middle. Like so the, uh, the fire festival. You, oh, sorry, go on. I didn't know that you made the, uh, the documentary. I've rewatched that documentary a handful of times, especially as the, no kidding, really. Because he eventually came out with the fact that, like, yeah, no, I was doing that kind of as a bit, like, and it was just sort of, I wonder how far this will go, and it just kept that. It's like it was a really brilliant piece of of film because it's like the level of neutrality of your voice in it lets it play Aww. in basically however whatever information you have about the actual guy sharpening the pencils, it will sit comfortably in that space, which is a really delicate kind of um filmmaking thing to do because it's very hard well, to thank you work. of course no I, I that's that's such a i didn't expect to learn that just now that's yeah nobody like knows that about me but i made that doc on i just took a camera and went to 
where he lived in Hud- I think it was Hudson. Was it Hudson or Beacon? No, I can't remember. Up, up in New York. And um, yeah, that was a whole other odyssey. But th- but I've ended up writing a lot and making videos occasionally about a lot of people and projects that fall into that gray zone of, again, what does it even mean? Like, I, I almost challenged David on his eventual assertion that it was a joke. Because who can, I mean, calling it a joke is too ambiguous. Like to call it a joke that for it to be a full joke, he would have had to have not actually sharpened hundreds of pencils, but he, he did, did sharpen hundreds of which he did. So <laughs> he did I'm not sure camera. it counts like, as a standard <laughs> joke at that point. It became a business that he ran, you know, and I mean, I've written about a lot of stuff like that. And this it, wrestling is kind of the er example of it. Yeah, it's like it, it, this. This explains in so many ways why someone like Andy Kaufman matriculated so completely oh, yeah. into professional wrestling. Like, um, we still don't know exactly how they went, or, or at least from what I've read. But apparently, um, in early meetings to set him up with Tennessee Valley Wrestling, which is where Jerry the King Lawler was at the time, um, uh, he apparent they apparently like kind of leveled with him about what was going on, and like there's the mutual admiration of them sharing notes about like, wait, so you will straight up just live a completely different personality just to fuck with people for no real reason. You want to wrestle? And he's like, I've been a childhood, uh, massive mega fan of wrestling. Of course I'd love to. Wow. Just, I, I forget exactly how, but it was something along the lines of like, there's this mutual recognition of like his mode of comedy. Yeah. Eventually got hit. The kayfabe of his world got so deep that people didn't believe he had fatal cancer when he did, even though he was telling people explicitly, like that's been very famously documented, uh, such as in award-winning feature films. Um, But that meshed so perfectly with a world of professional wrestling in which the exact same thing was going on. Um, It's just. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the Kaufman part because the, the, most important document that I read that inspired me and guided me in writing ringmaster was this very obscure essay that I found in a footnote. You can find it online at the San Diego reader. Cause it was originally published in the San Diego reader, San Diego reader.com. It's called the last wrestling piece. The headline that it has online now is not everything stinks about the world wrestling federation. And it's written by this, not just some random rock critic, the first rock critic, Richard Meltzer, who's often forgotten, yeah. but who was, you know, Richard Meltzer. So Meltzer, yeah. you know, was one of the first people to write in a critical mode about rock and roll. And he wrote songs for Blue Oyster Cult, but he was also a huge wrestling fan. And he was the first person to really sound the alarm about what the implications of Vince McMahon's brand of wrestling and his takeover were. He wrote this very like gonzo post hunter s thompson sort of post tom wolf although he was responsible for a lot of that too so i shouldn't just lay it (laughs) those other two's responsibility but it's very you know a lot of capitalized words and weird punctuation but if you can if you can meld with the overall vibe he talks a lot about stuff that is relevant now and he ends with kaufman and his whole thing is he is forever tormented by the question he calls andy kaufman the rosebud in wrestling's attic um he calls he talks about how he needs to know at what point 
Um, oh God, now I'm trying to remember exactly how he phrased it, but it's about the cancer and the wrestling where he's like, I need to know what the timeline was when he found out what was going on. Oh, I'm just turfing out here. Cause I can't remember exactly how he phrases it. This part wasn't as influential on me cause it had nothing to do with Vince, but it's worth checking out the San Diego reader last wrestling piece because it's a stunning work of writing about the nature of reality and about people who bend it. And he has a lot of admiration for Kaufman, but a lot of ire for Vince before that was cool. By the way, no one else really knew about Vince outside of wrestling, but he was paying close attention to it. Now I've rambled on about this essay too. No, That kind of goes into where we want to be, which is since ringmaster came out with all these allegations come out. So what, what's, exactly has happened that's made Vince McMahon resign there are lawsuits going around um like what's happening in the world of wrestling right now with WWE specifically well I mean the, the from the perspective that I find interesting what's happening right now is this real calm before the storm because there was already a little bit of a storm uh, I shouldn't say a little bit. It was pretty momentous. Like I said, Vince had to resign. But um, we're now in the calm before what I think is going to be a much bigger shitstorm, which is whenever the lawsuits and the federal probe into Vince McMahon finally come to roost and there's actual discovery and trials, who knows what could lie ahead. But there's a lot of legal problems that Vince has, but also that WWE and its parent company, TKO, and that company's parent company, Endeavor, which is owned by Ari Emanuel, they are facing a lot of problems just in the immediate, or at least semi-immediate future. Because what happened recently was Vince McMahon, after, oh God, you never know where to even start the story because it's such an epical, I keep saying epical. I've got to stop saying epical. It's the third time I've said it in this conversation. But Look, sometimes we naturally Mc... find a deep resonance with a word. I know. It just, <laughs> this is it feel, a lot curse. of this does feel like that. So I guess that's what it just keeps coming to mind for. But Vince McMahon was slapped with a new lawsuit by, from a woman who used to work for him named Janelle Grant. Uh, we're from at WWE, I should say. His former was she, WWE. Was she a wrestler or was she? No, she was. She was hired. Um, according to this lawsuit, she was somebody who lived in Vince McMahon's building where he's been living since he uh, separated from Linda, which is not official, but according to this lawsuit, is de facto true. He lived in this building. Uh, this woman, Janelle Grant, also did, and allegedly the building manager. Um, linked the two of them up because she needed a job and he said he could help her get a job. And as you might imagine, there were lots of conditions for getting that job, uh, allegedly, uh, of sexual favors and such. It was very uncomfortable for her, but she went through with it. She was somewhat desperate. She got the job as it was like an administrator coordinator. I mean, it was this sort of paper title that didn't really have any function because her use to him was as allegedly as a sexual object, as a sexual toy to be passed around within the company. And we don't have to get into all the details, but there are details that are alleged in this lawsuit. And some of them were very gruesome and disgusting. They add up to sexual harassment, sexual assault, and even sex trafficking in, you know, the allegations do. And, 
what ended up happening was about 24 hours, a little over 24 hours after the lawsuit became public through a Wall Street Journal report, Vince McMahon did the unthinkable. He resigned and is no longer affiliated other than being a minority shareholder, which is key, but does not give him really any leadership power. You know, he if he sold off all of his stocks, that could be bad for the stock price. But he is not but they're not it's not that much. It's it's a minority portion. And he used to be the majority shareholder, even during the period when he resigned during a previous wave of sexual uh, assault allegations, sexual misconduct allegations. You know, when he'd resigned that previous time in 2022, he still had the financial power to bring himself back anytime he wanted, which he did. He got this company sold and then this these allegations came out. So he's resigned and the future is very unclear, but there is a federal probe into Vince McMahon's sexual misconduct that has been ongoing for a while. And reportedly it has expanded to include the sex trafficking allegations and the allegations implicate other people. The other people are not named yet, but some of them you can figure out who they are just from logical deduction and others will likely, you know, be identified at some point in the future. And even beyond those individuals who are pseudonymously identified in the lawsuit, if these allegations are true, if even a fraction of these allegations are true, a lot of people at WWE knew what was going on and were actively aiding and abetting it, or at least allowing it and not reporting it. And that's going to be a real problem once there is more serious investigation in courtrooms and other settings into what was going on and who knew what when so it's it's a really confusing time and that's not i mean i'm not going to get into like the storylines of what's going on that's not as important i think Mm -hmm. um although it is kind of interesting that the rock is back and i say that not because i'm like you know marking out dude the 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 rock's back quite the opposite like everybody else I'm somewhat astounded that The Rock came back and there are a lot of people who are very upset about it. Now, they're not upset about it because it's such a a possible distraction tactic from the Vince News. I mean, it all happened right around the same time. Um, It's also it's more more hated because people think The Rock is disrupting Cody Rhodes's shot at WrestleMania. Like it's dumb reasons to be upset about it which may well be the exact intended reactions that WWE is looking for, but nobody seems to be paying attention now again to the WWE culpability in these Vince McMahon allegations. But Vince McMahon's goose does seem to be largely cooked among wrestling fans. Like I think it went too far and he became a bit of a joke. I mean, without, without getting too deep into naming things, it it, it was one of the most, damning features of this which i should say this is me saying it not you and technically we're talking about allegations so all that normal sort of sure statements there i i don't think terribly many people were or at least i wasn't shocked by this news i was obviously deeply unhappy um no one yeah was no happy learning about this but it's it's something that there had been unsubstantiated but like a lot of rumors um hovering around for a while and it felt at least to me like a very grim confirmation of like the worst possible case scenario of a lot of things and the thing to me that was the most damning was when certain people sort of preemptively stepped up to also file against 
Vince McMahon, um, who people who are implicated in in the charges themselves have sort of stepped up to preemptively hand over to the judge more information. Um, oh, you mean John Laurinaitis you're talking yeah, about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like, there's something... He, I should have uh, said he actually is named by name in the lawsuit. Yeah. I should have mentioned that, but yes. Yeah, so on. John Laurinaitis, who's named by name, um, made a point to put a statement out through uh, his lawyer that a lot of the things, at least per his lawyer's statement, a lot of the things in those uh, allegations are true and that he has sort of evidence of pressure on his end for some of them. Now, obviously, that's still, this stuff is still to actually see a proper courtroom, so technically it's all still allegations, but there is something especially damning to, um, because that's also never happened before. Someone that close to Vince. um, Yeah, really turning on him like that. Or or vetting any of this stuff, even like commenting on it, because like a lot of, there had been the open question for the longest time of how many people know or even would have known, given that so many are trained in all aspects of wrestling to be very good at diverting away from questions that aren't supposed to be answered. Like that's, that's the fundament of kayfabe is sometimes Mm -hmm. like, wait, weren't, weren't you and Roddy hanging out like backstage direction? Yes. Sleight of hand. Exactly. And so it raises this question of like the very real, that becomes sort of frightening for someone who wants to watch a product that we know is, um, you have to be kind of your head has to be pretty deep into the sand to not know that wrestling is a pretty, pretty distant from a purely ethical product um, to be very polite <laughs> about it. It's not um, going and, in the whole earth catalog anytime soon. Yeah. Um, but that it, it does sort of like there is the yearning for people or spaces or even like glimmers of moments that we can look at and go, OK, I can feel comfortable here. I don't have to have that. um uh, to, to name check something, the Jimmy Snuka or Chris Benoit yeah. thing in the back of our heads. Um, yep. That, uh, and if you want information about those two, Google it. You're not going to like it. Um, or or ooh. read Ringmaster the book. <laughs> That's right. I it, it would be it would have been a cr- cr- crazy shock if that did not get mentioned at any point. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Yeah, it, it raises just such a deeply uncomfortable thing of like how far down does, you know, I don't, I don't want to name. It goes really far down. I mean, yeah. I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the piece I had to make with wrestling while I was doing this research, because I was really energized by returning to wrestling after having been a teenage fan and not watched for 20 years. But at the same time, I'm learning about its dark underbelly. What I The piece I had to make with it is this is <clears throat> excuse me this is sort of the case for any creative industry that if yeah. you were to dig deep enough you'd find out i mean the movie industry for christ's sakes come on like i'm not saying it's just that wrestling turns it up to 11 and makes it more visible it's it's all the crimes of capitalism except funnier and more out in the open that's what wrestling is that's what the wrestling industry is so it really forced me to make ask big questions about all art that I watch where I'm like, I think I would find that there's this kind of depravity in a lot of different industries that have created art that I love. And you just have to find some quantum superposition where you're watching and enjoying something while also critiquing it in your head and understanding what parts of it should not be replicated and what parts of it should in fact be condemned. 
But of course, then there's still the problem of your pain unless you're pirating, you know, which I can't endorse or or condemn, um, you know, you're paying attention, at least, if not money to the product that is being created by unethical people, which thus rewards them. So you're kind of caught, you know, until the revolution comes, it's really hard to get out of that bind. Yeah, it's it's, it's a classic Iconian problem that he brings up in the the essay in which he names hyper reality. I, I forget right. what it's called. It's something about his trip to Disneyland where he's on Main Street in Disneyland in, uh, in California and sees a version of America, the American heartland, that's more real than any part of the American heartland ever has been. And by this point that he's writing in, I think the late sixties, um, he's yeah. seen it sort of superimpose itself back onto reality where we already saw by the sixties, a repainting of the fifties as like this idyllic post-war time rather than being right. ravaged by, um, racism and, and queer phobia and misogyny as we know that well, it just, actually and imperialism and any number of horrible things yes, yeah absolutely and so like it, it's that it's that same like as you're saying it's that same vexing problem that um it would be it would be wonderful if capitalism was the only force that creates that kind of dual reality of like a the palimpsest of the false image superimposed upon the real but um it sadly seems like it's a just a recurring problem throughout yeah i shouldn't blame just capitalism but i mean you know, capitalism does do it to be fair <laughs> yeah yeah i i more meant until i don't know there's yeah. some new evolution in human existence where we can move beyond that i mean that's always the question like i wrote this essay for the new york times if you'll forgive the expression um back uh, last year about how the wwe philosophy of neo kayfabe was very similar to the overall republican philosophy during the age of trump and i couldn't really have a happy ending where i was like and here's how we break out of that like i sort of gesture in the realm of like we should just be a lot more honest but that doesn't totally solve the the problem you know yeah, it really the, doesn't yeah, i'm too. i'm very much stumped as i think the closest thing to an answer that you're getting as to how at least to, to make things stick to teflon men is who bend reality is found in my most recent piece, which was I interviewed Bret Hart about the Vince McMahon allegations. And he became the first professional wrestler of any note to go on the record as just completely denouncing and severing ties with Vince McMahon and I saying that he completely interview. believes the allegations. I didn't and know I think I didn't know that you were the one who did that interview either. I'm learning quite a lot of things. Yeah, you're the second interview I've done where somebody has not known I was the one who did the interview that that all came from. But the, talk about layers of palimpsest. You know, yeah. you're just reading downstream coverage of it. Um, literally, I was doing a podcast the other day where somebody said, now, Bret Hart's been in the news a lot. What are your what's your take on that? <laughs> like, well, you're like, you're I'm kind of finding he was in the news. Really interesting. But, <laughs> yeah, very interesting. The writer really had some good ideas. But anyway, the point is, I think what what turned Brett, according to my interview with him, was the details of the allegations which are basically a humiliating joke at his expense. Now, I mean, now the allegation is that he did something at somebody else's expense, but the public perception of that allegation is he looks foolish, disgusting, weak, pathetic, and not in a joke that he wrote because he's looked weak and pathetic in the past, but always on his own terms. And this is very much not on his own terms and there's material harm involved, but the material harm is not, I think the thing that really has swayed people 
to reject him. I think it's much more the allegations and if they believe them, their new perception of him as pathetic and gross rather than dangerous and possibly evil. Yeah, it's a rough time to be a wrestling fan. It's a weird time to be a wrestling fan. I am very... Very curious to see what happens next, because if Vince is gone, here's the thing. Ari Emanuel is now the ultimate authority in WWE because he owns Endeavor. And if this investigation gets to a point where it's looking really bad for Ari Emanuel, he's not, he doesn't have any love of the business. He'll execute the entire C-suite. Like, he'll fire all of them. He doesn't care. Like, it could be a completely new era. I'm not saying this is necessarily going to happen, but it could be a completely new era at WWE and therefore in North American wrestling because the bean counters are in charge now, not the wrestlers and the promoters. The bean counters, the corporate suits who have no love of this business are now the ones who actually run it. It's really wild what has come about in the past year and a half. I mean, we have sort of Ari Emanuel facing down a secondary, much more vexing business-related problem of there being, in a certain sense, two possible scenarios. Either during the discovery probes for acquiring an asset as big as WWE, the stuff came up right. and was ignored, or alternatively, despite how big it is, it didn't come up. And both of those being deeply troubling problems to face on a business side that are Absolutely. completely different in their shape. Yep, 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 yep. You're completely right. And they're trapped in this dilemma where it's like, okay, so let's say they decide to break ties with Vince McMahon. Well, A, he's still a minority shareholder who's richer than God. So if he sold off his shares, he could really screw with your stock price. But more importantly, what, you're going to excise the Vince McMahon content from your library? What, you're just going to cut everything you've ever done? He was the announcer for virtually every show. And then he was on virtually every show. And only in recent years has that sort of petered out. I mean, I don't know what you would do if you were. It's not like Chris Benoit, where it's one modular piece of a much larger tapestry. He is the tapestry from a a pretty early stage. Yeah, it like it really can't be overstated for people who, if you're not a wrestling fan, what you think of when you think of wrestling is Vince McMahon. Like whether you know the name or not, that's like it, it's especially one of the things that makes something like um, AEW so fascinating because that's still very much in a post Vince McMahon mode. Oh, like, yeah. Because yeah, it has absolutely. to be because like the very few people are going to return to like the Bruno Sammartino, Bob Backlund style of professional wrestling. That's just not that's right. just not really a mode that anyone does anymore. But what that's I basically see... what you'd have to do if you wanted well, to. Well, no, I mean, there's the alternative, which is going in the direction of the <laughs> the alternative that could have come about uh, if it had. And this is a whole separate story that I'm working on, which is in the 80s, you had another approach to wrestling which was independent of Vince McMahon, influenced in some ways, but independent of him. And that was Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. And what I see in queer wrestling today is the mantle of Glow being picked up and this degree of like, okay, we're all going to admit that we don't really want, this is not hardcore wrestling. We don't want to see people get hurt. And we also don't want to see feelings get hurt in this, you know, 
neo kayfabe weird messing with reality way. We want to have a good time with this cool art form like Commedia dell'arte, where we have different roles and we mash the roles up and we see what happens. And there's physical action that's interesting. And what I see in queer wrestling these days is stuff that's like, influenced by drag as much as it's influenced by you know the nwa or whatever the hell and that's where i really get hope is this art this art form is thriving right now it's just the wwe is still trapped in the mind of vince mcmahon even though vince isn't even in charge anymore so the, the hope for wwe as is the case for virtually everything it's it's just gonna get a lot queerer it's gotta lot get a lot gayer a lot transer I think that really is, I'm not joking. I really do think that if they had a longer term plan, that's what they would do. But they're just thinking about quarterly profits. I mean, they're like any corporation. Like it's, that's not their concern. But they really, if they knew what was good for them, they'd be investing in queer audiences who really love their product in spite of the fact that no queer content really gets used on there. And when it does end up getting used, it's very often insulting. Now it was worse in the bit back in the day, but it's still not great now. I mean, you know, you have these like pretty deadly, this, t- this <laughs> tag team that are like heels and they kind of like allude to them being gay, but like they can't even commit to that really. And like allude to them being trans sort of, but they can't commit to that. So it just ends up being insulting while also not really being funny or coherent. And like, that's the degree of queer, like the real queer content is watching Rhea Ripley, like Rhea Ripley, the female wrestler who is unbelievably well built and has this very cool gothy gimmick. Like every queer I know, regardless of gender or sexuality is completely in love with Rhea Ripley. Yep. But like, this is, yeah, exactly. (laughs) What'd you say? Co-sign on that. Yeah. Co-sign on that. Right. But the thing is. She can destroy me with her thighs if she wants. Right. Everyone loves Rhea Ripley, but they're not. When are they going to let Rhea Ripley have an intergender match? Like, when is she going to, like, put Cody Rhodes into a submission hold like everybody would love to see? When is she going to pin Gunther and become the Intercontinental Champion like they already let China do, you know, 25 years ago when they haven't had the ball? They keep trying to bill her as, like, a a second coming of China. Like, they they even will, like, in the the sort of soft pitch uh, interview process that she has sometimes, they'll they'll tease at that. And you can tell she really wants to. Like, that's – because to be fair – any woman wrestler would want to be in a similar position as China. Yeah, just. But mm. like she works real. She already does all these storylines where she's interacting with the male wrestlers because she's in this stable with other wrestlers that are male. So she gets to interact with them, but it's like they, they can't consummate it because there's still this this tr- the, this degree to which they're trapped in these dumb heteronormative roles that Vince McMahon has been obsessed with since he was growing up in the 1950s, you know? I mean, it's, it's not a mistake. And this is me looking uh, square into the eyes of certain, um, uh, my, my current bugbear is the baffling rise of deeply trans and queer phobic communists who I hate with all my heart. Oh God, <laughs> um, Ugh. I hate them with all my heart. Uh, way yeah, to embarrass yeah, me yeah. guys. Um, but uh, that like, pro-queer and pro-trans political positions are as much part of liberatory politics as any other uh, capacity. And like, it's really not a joke to say that like things need to embrace that wing of that wing of the world, the same way that we need to embrace certain things of like 
uh, the deep blackness of a tremendous wing of uh, basically all culture, um, the yeah. the working class substrate of everything that you see. Like it's it's not a rhetorical move to say that, and it's not like a liberalizing no, it's move. No, it's, it's like, just that's that's the that's the mission. That's what you're supposed to be doing. And it's like if you anything, know? a lot of the argument has been that like. So the flippant version is that everyone's a little bit gay. That's not, that's, that's overly truncates the fact that Eros is experienced quite broadly by everyone. And a lot of the more violent responses we see are more self-repression of aspects of self that maybe, maybe these people wouldn't pursue a romantic or sexual relationship with someone, but that panic response of I'm feeling a sense of eros just sort of the the abstract more primordial form of desire and i don't know what to do with it um mm. that leads to a lot of wildly destructive acts not even just within things like uh homosexual desire or um genderqueer desire uh but like the the general space of a desire which is uh foreclosed and forbidden which then creates the sort of libidinal self-destructive uh mode i'm getting dangerously close to psychoanalysis which i, also I was about hate. to say we're almost you're gonna bring up lacan next where should I, we go where should we go with this one i'm getting dangerously close to that and notoriously i'm a big lacanian <laughs> hater um but oh you're anti-lacanian oh so you don't like slavoj zizek okay Got no it. no i'm not oh, not not a zizek type no i'm much more i won't invite him to the party it's i'll, fine. I'll say okay. i'll say his name gareth get ready deluse um <laughs> it's got it you thought i wouldn't get deleuze mentioned within the podcast Uh, but at the night at the ninth hour or 11th hour like see dues because uh see deleuze nuts no that doesn't work (laughs) no that no i'll I'll give that a pass yeah Yeah, okay yeah yeah i guess a sea do is a real thing it's those little like water ski bikes but anyway, anyway that's Neither here nor there. I want to just really quick say I did find the line I was looking for from uh, the last wrestling piece. The thing that he's pondering, and I won't get into exactly where he lands, is so what do we what we need to know vis-a-vis possible death knowledge is was this that is wrestling by choice Andy's literal final stand. Like when Andy got into wrestling, did he already know he had cancer and was assuming wrestling is the last thing I want? It's like the thing I want to go out doing. And I don't know enough about Andy Kaufman to know if that's true, but that pondering of reality and fantasy and death and life is very inherent to a, a healthy understanding of wrestling. And anyway, so I just wanted to toss that in there. Maybe that helps us cap it off. I don't know how much more you wanted to talk. That's a beautiful yeah, I think, line. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good place to end because yeah. I'm sure this story is going to evolve. A lot have me back anytime. I really enjoyed. I liked the last time, and and this lineup was great too. Yeah, so yeah. really, I'd happily come back. Cool. Um, where can people find you, and where can they? Yes. Um, I keep forgetting to actually tout my podcast, which only has one season, but the second season is about to launch. It's uh, called One of the Girls. It's me and pop culture critic Nina Starner talking about. Uh, f- pop culture through the lens of femininity, her a cis woman, me a trans woman and sort of riffing on one or two pieces of culture. I'm making it sound less exciting than it is. It's really quite delightful, I think. Uh, but mostly you can find me on my website and that is josie.zone, J-O-S-I-E dot Z-O-N-E. And you can also find me on Blue Sky. I got kicked off of Twitter almost a year ago. 
and I've never been happier. You can find me on Blue Sky, and my username there is also Josie.Zone. Mm -hmm. And I can attest a very good follow on Blue Sky. Oh, and thank you. Yeah, I, I, there's not that many great uh, accounts on there. It's still lagging behind. Yeah, but, Blue Sky uh, yeah. is still, they're learning how to post. They haven't gotten there oh, yet. They're come learning. on. I like yeah. a lot of people on there, but you got to look for the like tiny, tiny accounts. Yeah, like the ones that, it was true on Twitter too. Yeah. The big accounts are never the real show. The real show was like finding the total weirdo sickos who you weirdly agree with or enjoy disagreeing with. That's absolutely true. That's yep, a that is, fact. That is our people. Um, <laughs> So we're going to um, cap off the episode by doing like a tonal, total 180 here. Um, going to play a song by the band Dark Space from uh, Bern <laughs> in Switzerland. I mean, it's not total tonal 180 because they do have kayfabe. These are the guys who look like they could be wrestlers. They've got silly makeup on. In their band photo, they look like they're just coming out onto stage. They, they say have... that their music comes from space. Yeah, and they're named Roth and Yis and Zaral. Yeah, black metal is, uh, most extreme metal is a, a deeply kayfabe enterprise, and they really hate when yes. you say that they get silly with it. But they do, they oh, get yeah. silly with it. It's deeply silly. And people hate when <laughs> bands acknowledge that it's silly. People I hate know. when bands aren't silly, like, like Death Heaven. Um, Remember? That's really Matt... interesting, because I don't follow metal enough. I didn't realize that that it, level it's of just kayfabe was still but true. Noisier. It, it's just yeah. It, it has it, it, all the same problems, all the same great things that's about right. it. Yeah, um, yeah. It sounds that way. Like, the same level of, like, oh, that's so funny. It's almost like he's some kind of weird Viking lord. Oh, wait, he's actually a, a racist. Like, I'm mm. sure that oh, happens yeah. all the time. Oh, yeah. my God, that's yes. That's, that's <laughs> you're like, classic. I thought that was a bit. I thought that was a bit, but oops, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, if anything, metal band, it's uh, the running joke in the metal world, Josie, is that when someone suggests a new band to you, and they're not a co-worker, there's a whole subset of metal bands referred to as co-worker metal. That's our five oh, finger okay. death punches, our falling in reverses. So you hear it from someone else and you go, wow, that band, band sounds really. And then you turn away from them and you start Googling their name and the word racist or uh, like allegations. And if nothing comes up, you turn back and you go, interesting. I had to do that to Dark Space before the show. I've had to do that to every band we've had on. <laughs> Yep, and we, I'm, I'm, we laugh so that, that we don't cry. <laughs> yeah, I, yep, we've yep. had bands on that have turned out to be turfs, like literally interviewed yeah, on the show. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, hey, don't get me started on that. If you want to go through my record, I have interviewed so many people who were later outed. Like when I was on staff at New York Magazine, I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people. And a lot of them were celebrities that ended up that I would have like some big splashy feature with. And I'd be like, look at me. And then like three weeks later, they'd be outed as some rapist. And I'd be like, God yeah. fucking damn it. Like, ugh. You're like, can anyway. you remove my name from that article that's doing really good for my career? Right. Just, that I was don't... the thing that, well, that was, that was, I will fully confess the worst, worst example of that was when I profiled Max Landis. <sighs> and then like, four weeks later the allegations came out and i honestly had not heard any of the allegations even in secret but that is not a testament to my good reporting on that it was like a real like it was a fail so i'm putting that out there in the world because i feel like i need to do penitence for having uh written a not not critical enough 
profile of Max Landis back in the day. Mm-hmm. At least with Max Landis, you don't have to like guiltily enjoy his films because it's impossible. No, to enjoy. you yeah, kind of don't. No, he didn't really leave that huge an impact on cinema. Remember um, Chronicle? That movie is terrible. You know, I had, I had, I had, I, it was the found footage superhero movie. I had some love for it back in the day, but I'm very okay. happy to discard it now. No problem with that, you know? Also, orc, orc cop movie. <laughs> okay. Um, yes. At least, at least right. the movie where an orc turns to Will Smith and explains racism. <laughs> <laughs> This, you couldn't have written a better satire. God, what a fucking idiot! <laughs> wow, he, he thought wow, that was wow, going to wow. be as big as Star Wars. He is on record. It was. Saying, it was going to be his Star Wars. Wars. Yeah. Well, they made a sequel, didn't they? I can't they, remember if they, he was they even they involved. They made a um, animated sequel on Netflix. They did. Oh, what was that? Well, it was animated, animated like side. I think uh, when it was like set in like samurai times, but one of the samurai. Wait, was I'm more. sorry. What? Shut yeah, the fuck but, up. This is I'm looking this up. Wait a minute. Real. I usually this like is... Googling during an interview, but you've made me want to see. Okay, where's C? Yeah, All right. Yeah, okay. Reception, critical response. Scrapped anime spinoff. Yep. Anime spin-off. Bright colon samurai sword. Wow. <laughs> it's called samurai sword. It, okay. Soul. Soul. I'm sorry. Oh, samurai soul. soul. Okay. I, that doesn't make it that much better. No, it doesn't. Right. Not. Samurai soul. Wow. This sounds really stupid. Yeah, and I, doesn't I seem to have it. anything to do with Max Landis. That's very interesting. I, they just I got, wonder what the logic huh. was behind. Okay. So we can't salvage the Max Landis connection, but we, we can't let go of Orc Cop. <laughs> what the hell? What if the Orc Cop was a samurai now? That's really one of the most amazing Hollywood stories I could think of is just that level of like every committee bouncing to another committee. And ultimately through the game of telephone, you end up with bright samurai soul, which I'm sure I am not the first person in a high level meeting to say, what was that movie? Bright samurai sword. I can't imagine most people remembered the title was not Samurai Sword, just that being a more common phrase. Right. (laughs) Anyway, I don't know why we're talking about this. We should probably shut up and, like, let ourselves go have our life after this. No, we're the ultimate part of podcasting where all three people are Googling different things. I'm not, I'm not kidding. So you've done a bunch of interviews on one side. Oh, actually on both sides of the table. Yeah, you've yeah, done yeah. a bunch on the other side. And there's definitely like, uh, without naming names, there's definitely times when you talk to someone and they are there to shill a product and not to have a conversation. And that's fine. Oh, like, yeah. we're, we're all playing yeah. the game. Get that. Not hating on it. But sure, the, sure, it's sure. a lot. It feels a lot better when you're like, no, I'm actually talking with this person. Mm. We could talk about the old cop movie. <laughs> you know. Well, I felt like I was really talking to y'all. Thank you for having me on. This was a lovely little uh, chat. I mean, it was about upsetting things, but what isn't these days? That's right. That's sadly, that's right. (laughs) Yep. So as far as upsetting conversations go, this one was delightful. (laughs) It was on our end as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, come back anytime. Um, And we're going to end the show with... um, a extract of the 47 minute long song that is the new dark space album dark space minus two 
Yeah, uh, I had initially out. thought this was Dark Space 2, which was confusing to me because that came out over a decade ago. And then I found out, no, <laughs> minus it's, two. it's Dark Space <laughs> minus two. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Numeral two. It's just, it's that, like was there the a minus? Is. I'm sorry. I, I know I already said goodbye, but is there a minus one? No, that's a great of question. Course not. No, of course there not. was a one, two, three, and three, one which you're supposed to read as four, but it's specifically written as the Roman numeral three, then a space, then the Roman numeral for one. Wow. Black metal, everybody. And then negative two. (laughs) Negative two, yes, which is classically the number that comes after three, one, the number (laughs) after three. (laughs) It's being channeled from space. Um, oh my god okay stop it i have to go (laughs) okay play the song all right here's dark space 